Hey, everybody. All right. So good to see everybody. It's like, um, uh, I can't tell you, these are the mornings where you, you do not understand how thankful I am for Spencer Schultz and all his work with our music. He's on vacation for a couple weeks, and I'm sweating under my arms. It's all good. It's all good. But uh, so great to be together. Great day. Uh, kickoff for many of us around the fall season. And uh, football is upon us, which some of you just think that's lame, but it's such a joy to me that I'll be in front of my television watching Tom Brady throw touchdowns this evening. It's great. Um, you don't care, but that's okay. I care, right? Um, Michigan's 2-0. You don't care. I care. It's all good. Um, but seriously, thrilled you're here. My name is Drew. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you after the gathering. Um, and just thrilled that you could be a part of one of our mornings here at Praxis. If you're new and you want to stay in the loop with some of the things that are happening here, at the back, there's an iPad there that has a, like a digital connect card that you can fill out. If you fill that out, we'll make a donation on your behalf to Mission Services. And we just love the work that they're doing within our city. And so only if you want, no pressure, absolutely no pressure. Everything's an invitation here. But if you want to do that, go ahead and do that. And we'd love to keep you in the loop with some of the things that are going on. I'll say this, this morning is interesting because it's going to be part bringing you up to speed on some things that are happening and some things that are going to be happening over the next number of months. And so I'm not going to do announcements per se. I think this is all going to be kind of drawn in together if that's okay. Is that okay? Let's do this. Let's start with a Venn diagram. You're like, man, I got out of bed for this. Yes, you did. Welcome to church, a Venn diagram. We've been really wrestling over the last little while as a community, what it means to follow Jesus together. From our launch in February as this kind of new community under the name Praxis, what does it mean to be a community that practices the way of Jesus together? It's my, and I don't want to be critical here by any means, it's my assumption as I rub shoulders with people that sometimes people are a part of communities, but they can't articulate what they do. And one of the things we've been saying around here is we really hope that if you're at the heart of what's happening here, that you would be able to articulate in some ways the stuff that we do. And we've been drawn into a particular rhythm over the last little while so that every season you know we're doing a few things. Every season, Praxis has a particular kind of rhythm. One, we have a spiritual practice or discipline together that we practice every season. Two, we have a teaching series, and your kids, and if you have students and youth as well right now, I mean, it's just a, such a buzz over on the other side of the building as these kids engage in their lessons and themes as well. And then three is a community outreach that we would have every season that we would purpose together and join together in and join in on. And so this is the, this is the hope for us, is that every season this would be our particular rhythm. So let's talk about these things for a bit and just where we're headed. Sound like a plan? Sound good? First of all, a brand, we're, today we're launching a brand new spiritual practice that we hope to practice over the next number of months in the fall season, and it's the spiritual practice of simplicity. A guy named Richard Foster, he says this, simplicity is freedom, duplicity is bondage. Simplicity brings joy and balance, duplicity brings anxiety and fear. How true, how true is that, Right? So in a culture right now that's shaped by FOMO, <laughs> right, the fear of missing out, and clamoring for us to be attentive to the next thing, Jesus actually invites, invites us into a simple life. 
The church, ultimately, we believe, is called to be a simple people, unswayed by the empty promises of busyness, hurry, and more stuff. And so one of the questions we've just just been wrestling through at a core level for us is what if we as a community could live this way in a city where people tend to run to the next thing? Anybody with me? How could we be these kind of people that live out this practice? And so I am at the heart of it, and our team as well. We believe simplicity should be the way of Jesus' followers. And actually, if you study the early Christians throughout the history of the church, this is the way they lived. Culture went frantic, and the Christians were always these people that simplified themselves in so many different ways. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to lean into this practice, and we'll probably have some midweek podcasts on this to help you if you want to do it. But here's what I want. We want to encourage you guys to be intentional and shape your life through the discipline of simplicity over the next few months. Now, this means being attentive to a few things. One, how we spend our time and what we put our energy into. The reality is that many of us, and I'm looking at myself as well, are too busy and we'll need to actually reshape our lives towards the thing that matter most in our lives. This will be a season, if you join us, I think that will help with your energy and your time. Even just an audit of that would be a beautiful thing. What are you putting your energy and time in? I think it will also help us to be attentive to how we spend our money and our resources, and, how, and ultimately the things that we consume, being challenged with this. Ultimately, Christians are called to live simply with our resources, so that we put God's kingdom first. And this means being attentive with our stuff to the poor and the powerless and are aware of how our day-to-day practices actually affect the environment. This is part of what it means to be drawn into simplicity. So our time and our energy, but as well our money and our stuff and how we consume in a consumeristic culture. You with me? And we want everybody during this discipline just to think deeply about how we shape our lives around God's community. Honestly, many leave little to no margin to actively participate in community, and the hope is is that we would become a community, and this would be a season where all of us would simplify our lives to participate more actively in the lives of God's people. This is what simplicity meant to the early Christians, and I hope that it's something we could cultivate in our own lives. Is this okay? And so if you actually go to our website, there is a whole, uh, there's recommended readings. I think we actually have a slide of a couple recommended readings that we'll have up there for simplicity, and there'll be some chats and talks and podcasts and stuff that will help lead us. We're not gonna deal with this specifically on Sundays, but as a community that practices the way of Jesus, we are always practicing something together. Make sense? And so we want to lead you. We'll talk about this and and lead you with some special things over the next couple of months. But what does your community do? Well, one of the things we do is we practice the way of Jesus and practice the disciplines together. The second thing that we wanted to bring you up to speed with is just around our community outreach. So you have a, a spiritual discipline and a community outreach. We have had an amazing year partnering with some incredible uh Uh, resources and organizations in the city so far this year. And we have a brand new one that we're going to partner with this fall. It's called Urban Roots. And they do an amazing job. They're a not-for-profit here in town doing urban farming and are helping with some sustainable things as well as helping with those in need with food. And so 
I want everybody right now, if you can, to mark, I know it's quick, normally we give like months in advance, but because of the season, we have two weeks, and in two weeks, on Saturday, September the 21st, we're going to join in at Urban Roots from 2 o'clock in the afternoon to 4, and we're going to serve there. Uh, Actually, Pat's going to come right now. He helps head up our community outreach. He's just going to share a little bit of what we're going to be doing and how you can join in. Give Pat a hand. Come on now. Woo! All right. That's a high brain Hamilton, yeah. Beauty. Awesome. And so there'll be an online registration that'll go up this week that you can join us. But we're just asking, man, could you carve out a couple hours in a couple Saturdays? Join us. We'll get a tour there. We'll get to serve. And we'll pour some of our resources into what they're doing in the city. Our hope with our outreach is not to reinvent the wheel. We don't think we've arrived as a church and we're just going to be like amazing. One of the things we want to do is we have the people resource to come alongside some really beautiful things in our city. And uh, this happens to be one of them. So uh, that'll be sent out in week. And if you want to join us, it'll be a great afternoon uh, hanging out. And it's kid-friendly. Did you say that? Kid-friendly. So you can bring your kids along, and there'll be some stuff for them to do if you have children. Make sense? Good? All right. So we have our community outreach. We have our spiritual discipline for the fall season. And then we have, of course, our Sunday teaching series. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. You may want to turn your Bible on. If you don't know sweat, some of the verses will be on uh, the screen to help us. But I'll just say this. I recently heard someone say, if you don't want controversy, then go to church on Sundays. If you don't want controversy, then get in the nice little safe church on Sundays. Their point was that the church often plays it safe, and if you want real dialogue about the issues of our day, then ultimately their point was listen to a podcast or read the New York Times or read an article online to be enlightened. If you want to get to the real heart of some of the issues of our day, then find it somewhere else. Now here's the thing. Um, In many ways, this is true. Are you with me? In many ways, this is very true. And yet as humans, and especially I think as Christians, all of us have questions about all sorts of things. One of the questions that keeps rising to the surface for me and for our team is this. What if the church could be a place where we wrestle through some of the most important issues in our cultural moment? Do we have to go to other places 
to wrestle through the things that are buzzing in your minds and in your hearts and in your lives. And this is what we've been, where we've been. You know, we've taken the year to introduce who we are as a community. We've walked through the letter of Ephesians. But really, as I rub shoulders with people and have coffee and to spend time with people, I realize that there are all sorts of questions about all sorts of things. And one of the things I'm sensing, and I gotta be careful here because I am, don't wanna be judgmental in any way, but I kind of feel as I rub shoulders with people that we are living in the wake of a shallow church. We're living in the wake of a shallow church. So many of us have questions about really pertinent, important things, even in the scriptures. And yet for many, I just rub shoulders, there's been a, a lack of dialogue around, I think, some really important things. And I'm just convinced that the church should be this place where we wrestle through these things. I mean, we are living in the wake of this. Um, even at a popular, popular level, many of you guys know, the, the internet, the interwebs have been lit on fire the last month or so with a guy named Joshua Harris. Joshua was, a, I think, is a great guy who uh, wrote a book in his 20s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Anybody, any, anybody with me? Anybody read that? A little maybe scarred in, in the early 90s or whatever. He wrote this book and it kind of launched purity culture within the church. And uh, he was single and got big off this book and became world famous. And over the last little while, uh, and his journey as well went into being a megachurch pastor in a very reformed church over time. And just watching his journey over the years, you could see an evolution in his own life. And recently, he kind of went to the interwebs to let people know that he's no longer a follower of Jesus. Now, this is a side note. I think there's room to deconstruct and walk with people. But it's very interesting because watching his journey, it just felt like there wasn't a ton of room to wrestle through things. And then all of a sudden, 20 years later, as there's a certain kind of thing placed over your life because of your theology, and there's really no room to question it, you end up kind of at the end of the day just walking away. And I have actually have a heart for this guy. I, I do believe that God's hand, I believe, is on him. And through this deconstruction, I think something big and beautiful will come from it. But that's just my opinion. Then a couple weeks ago, a guy named Marty Sampson. Uh, I've known, I, I've met Marty. I'm a Hillsong kid. Went to Hillsong back in the day in the early 2000s. What do we say the early 2000s now? I think that's what we say now that we're almost in like 2020. How's everybody 2020 vision going? That's what I'm asking. Everybody had a 2020 vision. We'll see how that all works on January 1st. That's going to be my first tweet of the year, by the way. How's everybody's 2020 vision going? But anyways, um, Marty Sampson took to the interwebs. Great guy. Worship leader became super famous early in the days of Hillsong when their music exploded around the world, has written many songs that you have probably sung and know. You may not even know that he wrote them. This is what he said. I quote on Instagram, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved, yet four billion people go to a place all because they don't believe? I love how it's because, apostrophe, C-O-Z, Instagram, amazing. No one talks about it, he says. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I am not in anymore, he says. I want genuine truth. 
Not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives. Not just one vision of God. Got so much to say, but for me, I am keeping it real. And then he says, unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. Now, what's crazy about this is I actually agree with a lot of it. I actually, I don't know about you, but there's parts of this that I actually agree with. Now, I don't believe that no one's talking about these things. I don't, I don't believe that to be true. But very people do. Very few people do. And it's interesting, in the wake of all this, you know, churches that build your faith and build you up to go out, and that's amazing. I think at times some of the pertinent issues in our day have been lost. And through all of this, through all of just wrestling through all of this stuff for me and our team and what we're looking to as a church, one of the questions that comes up for me is, do we really need to have a crisis of faith? Like, do, do we really need to have a crisis of faith? Like, what if we could be a community where everything was on the table now so that 10 years from now, everything doesn't have to implode? Please nod your head if you're with me. Are you with me? Like, what if we created a place in space where we don't need to have a crisis of faith. So I'm doing this, and I hate these illustrations because you guys know Heather and I are far from perfect, and we're the biggest sinners in the room. We're broken. But right now, I, it's the biggest season in my kid's life. So I have a, a daughter. I've, I've only got a couple more years of sermon illustrations before I'll have to pay her. But um, she, so we started this week, because uh, for grades six, seven, and eight, we've started a three-year journey walking slowly through the entire Bible together. And we're using the Bible Project stuff with the videos, and it's like the stuff they do is amazing. And you don't have to do this, but for me, it's just been like, I am the primary person that's gonna lead my kids in the way of Jesus, and why not start now? And one of the rules that we set forth right from the beginning is everything is on the table. Every, there is no question off limits. And by the way, Genesis 1 to 11, have you read it? Like, have you read Genesis 1 to 11? Like, all the questions about creation. Was the flood local or global? Like, these are questions she's asking already, and she's, like, 11. Or what about things like rape and incest and a dude taking too many wives, right? And a brother killing a brother. I mean, this all happens in the first two days. Everything, for her, is on the table. I don't want my kids, and I'm going to do this with each of my kids over the next little while, so that by the time they get to grade nine, they've at least read through the scriptures and at least wrestled through some things. And I just want to be a person that goes slow and takes a deep breath and goes steady and and is patient and non-reactionary. And I want to be somebody because I know we're not dealing with something that was written yesterday. We're dealing with ancient Near Eastern documents and documents and letters from the first century. I want to be a person and I want us to be a community that listens and slows down. So that's a lot to say this. We are going to, over the next 11 weeks, engage in a ton of stuff. Actually, we can throw it up. We're going to talk about a ton of stuff. This is not in any particular order, but we're going to talk about things like Gospel, what's the gospel? Kingdom, salvation, church. Next week, if you want to come, we're going to talk about hell and judgment and actually the hope of hell. And none of you think of it as the hope of hell, but we'll talk about this next week, the hope of hell. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about creation, evolution, and science. Some of you have been 
Fed may be stuff that says, well, you have to look at the creation account as like a, a modern science thing. We'll wrestle through that. We'll talk, and then these aren't in any particular order. We'll talk about God's will. We're going to take time to talk about the Bible because ultimately in our culture, how we got the Bible and what it is, is as important as what it says, Right? How did we get it? We're going to talk about money and sex, the unseen realm. We're going to talk about like angels, demons, the spiritual beings that we see in the Bible. We're going to talk about things like suffering, grief, and loss, social justice we're going to talk about because there's even a movement right now in evangelicalism that looks at social justice as a negative thing. And we have this Bible that leads us to all sorts of stuff. We're going to wrestle through that. We're going to talk about creation care and climate change. We're going to talk about things like free will and election. And should those things, how do those things work? Are we chosen before the foundations of the earth? Does God just send a bunch of people to hell that have no chance? Should be fun. Hope you join us. It's good. We're going to talk about woman stuff and feminism and the whole now living woman stuff. That came out weird. Sorry. (laughs) I won't be here that week, but if you want to come, it's going to be amazing. Just joking. I'm going to talk about women in the Bible, and there's these texts that talk about how women should be silent. What does this mean? And feminism. We're going to talk about a little bit about the wake of the Me Too movement. We're going to talk about things like violence in the Old Testament that a lot of us wrestle through. We see all this violent stuff. Is God violent? What, like, is, is Jesus like the hippie liberal son that com, comes along and kind of calms everybody down, this God of wrath? How does it all work together? Now, you're looking at this, and you're going, there's no way we're going to cover all this, and you're absolutely right. So one of the things that we're going to do is it's going to be pretty much every week we're going to use midweek podcasts to cultivate the discussion farther. So there will be honestly weeks, even this morning, the time is, I haven't even started what we're going to talk about. I'm going to have to stop at some point. And there are going to be weeks where these topics are so deep and so intense that we'll have to just kind of stop and come to the tables and take the discussion further into midweek podcasts. Even the stuff around the Bible, I think that week we're planning on doing five different podcasts that week just to release because we're not going to have time on Sundays to talk about it. Make sense? So join in online. We have a podcast feed. That's not self-promotion. That's just where a lot of this content is going to be and we'll help you uh, cultivate um, some more thinking around this. And we just encourage you to get in community. We have communities that meet and that is a great place. I'll just say this. Doubters are welcome. Bring your doubts. Listen, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Somehow we think doubt is the opposite of faith. Doubt is the opposite of certainty. And none of us are certain about everything in this room. I think that's actually very dangerous. I think the more inviting way is to invite people to follow this Jesus who shows us the way, the truth, and the life. So bring your doubts. But I'll just say this. There are a couple rules of engagement as we lean into this, okay? And this is really important. One, please, for the love, learn to disagree well. And I, this is, I'm saying this to, to what I feel is like the most beautiful community, but learn to disagree well. Can I just remind you, I am not infallible. Can we all nod our, our heads, right? And you know this. I know you know this. I want to be a community that listens to each other, where we can disagree, When necessary, and I've always done this in our teaching from the very beginning, when there are opposing viewpoints, all of them will be shown. So around things like eschatology and where there's not like complete consensus and clarity, even to things like hell next week, we'll talk about a few different viewpoints that Christian theologians would hold on hell, right? So I'm going to give as best I can. I'm not infallible. I'll give uh, the different, differing viewpoints, and I think we just need to learn 
to disagree on some of these things well if we do. Make sense? But also say this. Be open to being wrong or having your views changed. Be, you know what my life has been the last five years, especially when I went to seminary? It was having a life open to being wrong. And I just want us to be open to having where it needs to happen through the scriptures, having your views changed. So here's a great example. Um, we don't even have time for this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So, uh, you know, the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra is the story of these people coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city walls of Jerusalem after exile. And so it documents the rebuilding of the temple and the city and all that. And at the end, I think it's in Ezra, it shows that the elders of the community, like Israel, who's been in exile, come and they're weeping at the site of the rebuilt temple. And so I, for the last number of years, have used this as an example of, see, even with our own team, see, look at these guys just wonder at the, like, at the wonders of God. The temple is rebuilt, and they're just weeping for joy. And then a few months ago, I was reading the top scholar on Ezra and Nehemiah, and he's like, nah, they were crying because the temple was unimpressive, Right? And I just thought, there's a great example of like, in my head, I thought they were weeping for joy. And the, the, the top guy in this area was like, no, don't read it like that. They were actually weeping because this rebuilt temple was not near as impressive as the first one. And I thought, there you go. Just an openness to change our minds on things. So the last number of years, my ideas around the book of Revelation, you know, and eschatology, things like the rapture. Some of you are like, what? I know. Thank God you didn't grow up in that environment. But anyways, the last number of years, my ideas around this have changed, and it's become because of the Bible, because of a deeper look at what the scriptures say. Make sense? And so, and I'm, by the way, if you believe in rapture, that's amazing. We are going to disagree well. But I'm just saying, there are things in my journey over the last little while, and I'm sure you too, where things begin to develop and cultivate and change within you. So you're going to have questions, and we want to make a way for you to answer, to tackle some of these questions. Now, here's the thing. People have asked me in the past, like, we're a thinking community. We do this teaching thing pretty good, and we engage some things. Why don't you take questions on the spot at the end of the gathering or whatever, texting questions? You want to know why? Nobody is that good. Nobody, nobody's that good. And if churches do it, that's fine. But here's the thing. I noticed this when I got into a master's degree and I started to rub shoulders with people who were doing PhDs on like a single Hebrew word or like a little phrase in the Greek New Testament. And they were giving their entire lives to this one little thing. And then you have pastor dudes and gals, sorry, pastor dudes and gals, who kind of can come across and think like they know everything and to simply take questions on the spot, nobody is that good. And actually, the ones that I've listened to, typically the answers right on the spot aren't near as good as when there's time to actually think through it. You following me? And I'm rubbing shoulders with people doing their PhDs. I'm like, dude, you, this concentrated time you give to one little thing, and then I, I get up and talk about everything from sex to power to money to you know, hell to all, come on, we can't, we can't physically, I don't think that is the proper way to do it. So if you have questions you want to give, our church email, hello at my praxis, is used for everything. You can do it there. But if you want to be anonymous, then just go to mypraxis.church slash questions, and you can actually submit questions anonymously if you would like to do that. We'll open up an avenue to do that. Everybody okay? Take a deep breath. What time? No, I won't ask you the time because then that'll get your mind going. Here's what I want to do. You're like, you told us about the midweek thing, and so you better use that, right? Um, that's an introduction. 
and we're gonna have some fun over the next little while. But here's the thing, if I were to ask you, because I think this is important, and this may not be that controversial, but what we're gonna talk about for the next couple minutes is super important. If I were to ask you what Jesus spoke about most in the Gospels, what do you think it would be? What would it be? Some people would say, well, obviously love or love of neighbor, and that is there. Care for the poor, trust me, if anything Jesus talks about in the New Testament and in these Gospels and speaks of, it's care for the poor. But actually, the one thing that we kind of miss that Jesus speaks of the most is this thing called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The thing that flows off the New Testament and especially the Gospel, off the pages, is the idea of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing. Even though Meghan Markle was there yesterday at the U.S. Open final, and yes, we are part of the monarchy, I think kingdom is a little distant from us. Would you agree? We don't think in terms of kingdom much anymore. We're a democracy. Some of you watch shows with dragons, and you need to be judged, and yes, there's kingdoms in those, but, and read novels. But there, I'm just joking, by the way. You don't need to be judged. But some of you, some of you are like, yeah, they do. Yes, they do. Um, <laughs> I'll leave that to you, man. I'll leave that to you. Um, This idea of the kingdom is the central piece of the whole story and even the reason we're here, and yet a lot of people don't talk about it. So I want to talk about the kingdom of God. I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about salvation, and I want to talk about church really quickly because it's my assumption in the the, the North American culture we're living in that a lot of people maybe just go to church but don't understand what we're stepping into. And there's a story at play. In the garden, heaven and earth are together. We don't pick it up as much, but when heaven and earth are together with Adam and Eve in the garden, it is God's first temple, God's kingdom together. Heaven and earth working in fusion together. God is in rhythm with everybody, humans, the earth. It's really, really good. There's sex without lust, food without gluttony, this place of wine without alcoholism. There's this beautiful place of, uh, of shalom and no sin. But we know that the story goes really quick, that it's torn apart. And in the process, God calls this guy named Abram, who he, he would change his name to Abraham. And he tells him, listen, your people are going to be a people that will be my reconciliation project in the world. I'm choosing you out of sheer grace to show my love to the people around you. And the hope was, is that God would be their king. It's a theocracy. Actually, plan A was that from Adam to Abraham to this guy named Samuel, who was a prophet in Israel, the whole plan of this was that God would rule the people of Israel. Theocracy, he would be their king. Now the problem is, really quickly, Israel, this nation that's called out, they began to look at the other nations around them, and what did they have? A king. And they want a king. God says, even in the law, I want to be your king. And they say, no, we want a king. And here's what God does. Throughout the scriptures, he actually accommodates with people. And he gives, and he does this with us. Oftentimes, he gives us what we want, even when that's not a good thing. <laughs> and it's not on that one. That could basically be the story of my life, right? He's sometimes giving me things that, that, and letting me do things out of my own volition and own will that could be destructive. And with Israel, he lets them have their king. 
And all of a sudden, this kingdom from the very beginning in the garden that God wanted to rule and reign, now it unravels. And the rest of the story, really, the Old Testament can be summed up as the story of David, as the king of Israel and then the line of kings after him, some good and some not so good. But if you were a, a Hebrew person in the first century, you are waiting for a kingdom to be reestablished. Got to remember, Israel lost their land, their temple, their king. They were beginning to lose their identity a bit. And so their hope was a Messiah would come to save the day and redeem the people. And it wasn't just like, hey, so that we get to pray a prayer so that God forgives us of our sin. The hope was, it was really a political thing in many ways, that this king would come and he would bring, what does a king have? A king brings his kingdom. And so they're waiting for this. We don't have time to read it, but we're going to throw it up on the screen. Isaiah 52 is a great picture in the Old Testament, a prophetic book of what is happening. And there's a vision in Isaiah 52 where feet bring the message of the good news of the kingdom of God. Feet bring this message. It's a future, future vision that despite Jerusalem being in ruins, that God would still reign as king and is going to one day return to the city, take up his throne, and he's going to bring peace. That was the hope. It was more, again, it was more than just a personal thing. God's going to save me from my sin. If you were a first century Jew, you were waiting on the edge of your seat for a Messiah to come to bring this kingdom, to reestablish everything that was wrong. Now the point is, in all of this, is that they thought this was going to come primarily through a military warrior. They thought somebody was going to come and bring the sword and rally up an army against Caesar and take down the, the kingdom of Caesar and establish God's kingdom on earth. And we know that Jesus had a completely different way of doing this. It was so upside down for them, but it didn't, it didn't not involve the kingdom of God. So listen to the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospels. It says this, Mark 1, verse 14, if you look down. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming what? The good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. And what's the call? Repent and believe the good news. Now, if you hear this and you buy in as a first century Jew, you begin to realize you have plan A, which was theocracy. God was going to rule them. Plan B was these human kings. But now something is happening. What's happening in Jesus is plan A is being revised. God's return to plan A, and he's doing this, because in Jesus, God now rules once again. Jesus is the great king of this kingdom. And it wasn't going to come through swords, and it wasn't going to come through bombs and bullets, and it wasn't going to come through taking out Caesar and his little minions. This kingdom was coming in a completely different way, but Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. Now, here's the problem around the gospel in the Western church for, for the most part. For the most part, here's what we say when we talk about the gospel and the kingdom of God. We say things like this. You're separated from God because of sin, so repent so you can go to heaven when you die. That's kind of what the news, this news has kind of been whittled down to. You're separated from God, which by the way is true. You're separated because of your sin, so now what all of us need to do is we need to repent so that one day at least we'll go to heaven when we die. And while there's important truths in there, the, the interesting thing is when you read the text in its totality, this is not the whole story. Gospel, the word for gospel in the New Testament is euangelion. Can you say that with me? Euangelion? 
beautiful Greek scholars. And here's the thing with good news or the gospel is it was not mutually exclusive to Jesus. It was a political term or word used in the empire. So when Caesar, Caesar had good news way before Jesus had good news, by the way. Well, I guess Jesus preceded Caesar, but you know what I'm saying. And Caesar, anytime there was a, a battle won or anytime there was a change of leaders or Caesar, what they would do is they would send out euangelion to the empire. They would send out this good news to the world around them. They would put people on horses and literally send them out to announce that there was a reign of a new king. And none of us, when we think about gospel, think of that in terms of Jesus. Typically what we think is we're separated from God because of our sin. We have this thing called the Romans road and we want to make sure we go to heaven when we die. So we got to say this stuff and pray this prayer so we go to heaven when we die. And yet the gospel, the weight of this word around Jesus in the first century was heavy, was heavy. See, the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, not just how to get to heaven when you die. And listen, God's plan of salvation in all of this is at the center of it. There's no doubt about it. But just think with me for a second. If it was just about getting to heaven when you die, why would the Gospels talk about Jesus' life and teaching? You know, sometimes we talk about it as though that does, let's just, if, if that was it, if it was just about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, would we not just like get like a, a one-chapter Gospel saying this is what it's all about? There would probably be more to it because... The gospel is actually the great story of God. The gospel summarizes the entire life of Jesus, his teachings and everything in it. And Jesus was about the kingdom. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't say, this is what you need to pray to get into heaven. His story was way more epic, amazing. It was a radical claim that the kingdom of God has drawn near and it's gonna change all of our lives. It's gonna change life at the core. And my tension is, is sometimes we have a gospel that's kingdomless, and that's not how this works. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Scott McKnighty puts it like this. To gospel was to tell or announce or declare and shout aloud the story of Jesus as the saving news of God. So one of the things in the Western world we have to remind ourselves is that the gospel is not pr primarily about me first. The gospel is about who? Sunday school answer. You'll get it. Jesus. It was always about the announcement of Jesus. We don't have time to read this, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the gospel. And according to Paul, the gospel is the story of Jesus and what he has done. It's not just about fire insurance and getting to heaven. It's about the kingdom of God coming here and it's about what Jesus has done as the better king. The, the, the political tension in all of this is that you would feel it because there's a new king on the scene and these Christians believe that this new king was way better and way greater than Caesar. So according to Paul, this is what Jesus has done. And the gospel is the story of Jesus. So a guy named Matthew Bates, he put it like this. If you want to get the whole thing, look at it like this. Jesus the king, next slide if that's all right. Jesus the king, one, pre-existed with the father. Two, he took on human flesh, fulfilling God's promises to David. Three, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. Four, five, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Six, he appeared to many. That's part of the gospel. Seven, he seated at the right hand of God, which is a way of talking about his authority. And eight, part of the gospel is he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So my thing in the moment that we're living is let's just take the whole gospel. Let's take the whole thing. And the plan of salvation is at the center of it. But as a first century person, 
it wasn't just about me as an individual being saved. It was what God was doing in saving the entire cosmos. Nod your head if you're with me. Are you with me? Hang it in there. I know this is, sometimes we do church stuff and we forget that this is actually the center of it. So a kingdom has what? Really simple. A kingdom has a king and a kingdom has citizens. And there's no difference with God's kingdom. When we talk about God's kingdom and we hear that, we're talking about his rule and reign in the present age. And so when you talk about salvation for first century people, salvation was um, deeply ingrained in their politics. Caesar was the one who was going to save them. And now Christians are saying, no, Jesus is this one who saves and he is the king. The word for salvation in the Greek is actually the same word that's translated throughout the Gospels as healing. This is what Jesus did. He came to heal. Jesus brings healing. One of the things with salvation is when the Bible talks about salvation into this kingdom, it talks about it in multi-layered ways. So salvation, sometimes Paul, next slide if that's all right. We're almost done, I promise. Salvation sometimes is talked that we're saved and we're justified, which is past tense, right? Paul says, you were saved. So there was, it seems like a moment where uh, Jesus becomes king and we pledge our allegiance to Jesus and we're justified. But a lot of times the Bible talks that we're being saved. That right now as we gather together, there's this process called sanctification. There's a word, right? Big word. But that we're continually being saved. It's a process. But a lot of times people forget that Paul also talked about salvation as something in the future. So you were saved, you're being saved, but there will be a day that Jesus returns, wipes every tear away, and we will be saved. You're gonna be given a glorified body, the scriptures say. We'll talk about this a little bit when we talk about eschatology, that will be risen from the dead. Amazing story of the future hope and reality that we will be saved. So here's the thing. Instead of the gospel saying that we get the heck out of here, which a lot of people, this is their theology, it actually proclaims that through Jesus, the kingdom is coming where? People, the kingdom is coming here. And certainly there's all this implications of what, what happens when we die now, and I know there's questions around that, and we'll get to that. But the telos, the end goal, is that God's kingdom is coming here, and Jesus has brought salvation and the call is to lean into that salvation. He is the saving king. And even though there's injustice all around us, there will be a day when Jesus returns to set up shop here forever, see his kingdom established in totality. It's interesting. There's eight sermons, eight gospel sermons in the book of Acts. Guess how many mention in those sermons the afterlife of heaven, and hell, heaven or hell? Just take a guess. How many sermons, how many, how many of the gospel sermons in Acts talk about heaven or hell? Ready? Zero. Zippo. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important. We're going to talk about them. Come back next week, right? But I, it's interesting that these gospel sermons focus more on the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. So you have the kingdom of God. Jesus brings salvation. One of the questions we have to ask is, is how do we now enter the kingdom of God? And it's really simple. It's through repentance and faith through repentance and faith. This is what the call is for people who follow Jesus. I think it's there, it's back a few slides, through repentance and faith. The ultimate call for Jesus' followers is to join in with him and follow him in repentance and faith. This means turning from our sin. Repentance just means 180 
And then the faith piece is not like stepping out in the blind. I know we need to play oceans in the background and like it's like this step out in the blind and that's not what faith is in the Bible. Faith actually means loyalty or allegiance. That was funny, eh? Oceans, you like that one? That's good. I was thinking about that one all week. Play that, play that at the end. Um, uh, repentance and faith. Faith is this turning and the faith piece is actually allegiance or loyalty to Jesus as king. Very tangible for people who would put their allegiance and bow their knee to Caesar. Now Jesus says, I've brought salvation. Now you bow your knee and put your trust and your life in me. And so now the church, oh, the church, the church is this community now in the wake that God has brought salvation and the kingdom is coming and the gospel has been proclaimed. Now this community participates in God's kingdom now as a foretaste of God's future restoration of the world in the here and now. What I mean by that is we are now, as we act out this kind of fifth act in this play, this improvisation that we're now leaning into as the church community, we are a foretaste of what will be when Jesus comes. Now some of you are like, oh no, not the churches I've experienced. There can be, I know, there can be a difference between what we experience and what the call is on us, but we are actually called to be a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. Can I nerd out on you for two minutes and then we'll be done? Is that all right? Here's, here's one, I, okay, so uh, my specialty, if you're talking like concentration, is the church. This is where I spend a lot of time. So I am gonna do a midweek podcast about all things church, all things church. Um, we'll talk through things like, is it worth it? You know, uh, I want to talk about things like, is it worth it? And um, what does it mean to be life-giving? Right now, I hear a lot of churches use this word life-giving as though if your church has spinning lights and Spider-Man is checking the kids in at the door, that that means we're life-giving. And does that really, is that, is that what that means? I want to really look at that. I want to look a little bit at church and kingdom and how that all works together. Are they separate? What does that mean now? But I'll just say this. I'm going to double down, okay? Is this all right? Church is something you go to. Church is something you go to. Church is a gathering. You know, it's interesting, just as all these things placed on Jesus, whether it's the Son of God or King, were already synonyms used for other kings, in, especially Caesar and the empire, church was not mutually exclusive to people who followed Jesus. Church was actually a word used in the Roman Senate. It literally meant a gathering or a town hall. And ecclesia is the word. It literally meant just a gathering or an assembly together. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I'm going to nerd out, and you don't care, but that's okay. But the Septuagint, if you know anything, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scripture. So in the Greek-speaking world, they needed to tr translate the Old Testament into, Hebrew, or into Greek from Hebrew, so they called it the Septuagint. The word ecclesia, this word that we use for church, was used 96 times in noun form and seven other times in verb form in the Septuagint, which means it's the translation of the Hebrew scripture. And the Hebrew word for synagogue is primarily translated into Greek as ekklesia. Now, you don't care. You're thinking, I know, Tom Brady. I know you're thinking about him, and it's good. You're thinking about lunch. But I think there's meaning here because church and synagogue were, for the most part, synonyms. And so it's interesting that the Septuagint is taking the word synagogue and translating it as church. Here's what I want to caution us from. Be careful of simply saying, I am the church. Have you heard this before? The mom, 
on the sideline, watching her kid play soccer on Sunday morning, taking the picture of her Tim Hortons. I am the church. It's not something I need to go to. I'm pointing out that that is actually really for, that early Christians would be like, what are you, church was always a covenant gathering of God's people. And I, so I'm saying this because I used to say that all the time. Oh man, I am the church. There is some truth in that. But church, actually in its foundation, and I've had to deconstruct in this, has always been a gathering of God's people, a covenant gathering. It was a covenant gathering in the Roman Senate, and now the Christians took this word and used it. And I just want us to be careful because we can't be a foretaste of heaven if we never get together. Now I change my language. I am a follower of Jesus, I'm in Christ, but I am only the church when I'm with other brothers and sisters. Picking up what I'm putting down, you can totally disagree. I just had to strip it down to the freaking Septuagint to rattle my mind around this stuff. Are you with me? All right? And so we're in a moment where we are the church. We are this community that gathers together as God's covenant people. And I just want to be this community that does it well. I think we're in a moment, I think play this video. So here's, here's what I'm noticing on Instagram, just to close. Uh, on Instagram, I noticed that I'm into basketball. I don't know if you're into basketball. And here's what I noticed. There's these Instagram clips where somebody gets crossed over. Did you see that? Play it again one more time. You see this? So somebody dribbling away, somebody gets crossed over. Kid falls and the bench gets up and they go, oh, and everybody goes crazy and they laugh at the kid, which is really bullying. Come on, let's be honest, right? Jay, come on, are we, no, maybe we do that. But play it, play it one more time. You know what I noticed with a lot of these videos on Instagram? I've shared this before. Somebody gets crossed over and, oh, look at this. Kid's gonna fall and what happens? The, he gets to shoot and the video, what happens? It stops. Now, why does the video stop? Because the basket didn't go in the hole, Right? And I feel like this is a great analogy of the church in our moment. Because sometimes we get enamored with like what we're doing and what's so amazing and so, and we do this and that, and you should see my church. When the goal, I think Greg Popovich would look at this video and go, the goal is to put the basketball in the hoop. And I want to be a community that gets this right with what the full intention is. As with basketball, it's, you can cross people over all you want and look amazing, it's, um, that's great. But the goal of basketball is to get the ball in the hoop. And the goal of the church is to be this reconciliation project in the world and to be this community that loves God with heart, soul, and strength. This is who we need to become. Now I'll say this, here's a, here's a little parable. And this is a Drew parable, this is not Jesus, okay? Jesus' parables were like top shelf, this is way below. But this is my parable. A few years ago, a few years ago, two families moved to the same neighborhood. Both families had kids the same age, and the kids from both families started at the same school in exactly the same year. So the mom from one of the families was disappointed she thought the people in this new community and at the school were cold, snobby, and even though she was invited to a lot of events and get-togethers in the community, she didn't participate. And, it and she said this to people, it continually came up how even though many invites were given and, and extended to her, that this new community that she had moved into in this new school that she had moved into wasn't friendly, wasn't friendly. The other mom of the family that moved to the same community at exactly the same time, dived right in. 
She participated anytime the doors were open. She went to every party, every wine night, every get-together, every birthday party, and every trip out of town with the other moms in the neighborhood. And many of these gals became some of her closest friends. Her house became open to the neighborhood kids, and there was so much life and joy and community available to her living in this new community. So on one hand, moms move at exactly the same time. Families move. So one mom was frustrated and didn't participate. The other, exactly the same setting, found life and joy in the community. Now, just like Jesus, I'm sure you're asking, what is it, like when the disciples went to Jesus, what does this mean? So you're asking, Drew, what does this mean? Well, let me explain to you what it means, even though I'm not Jesus, I promise. The one gal is someone in my community who just complains. I actually have met with her, or not met with her, but I stand outside the kindergarten door and I hear her complain a lot. All the invites that have been extended to her, but she has failed to participate and she just kind of lets me know that the community's pretty snobby and doesn't do much for her. And you know we're broken and this is not a brag, but the other is my wife. Exactly the same time, moved at exactly the same season, and here's what I learned throughout this entire thing. Because I've been like a pastor dude forever, It's not just the church. I've realized, I have realized over time. I was so, I'm so in the church bubble that sometimes I think, oh, there's going to be some that will participate and others that won't, and it's just a church thing. And I realized in our very own community that even though I'm an introvert at times, and when when Heather says I'm going out again, I'm like, no, right? Stay home, right? That this is a decision on our end. I'm learning, it's not just the church, that some participate and some don't. And as we enter this new season, I just felt like saying this, we are here. We're here, and this is the beauty of the practice story. So many have come in. We are here to practice the way of Jesus together and live together in the kingdom of God. And I'm just learning that people, there's not, the beautiful thing, the weight is off our shoulders because all we can do is invite We can't make anybody do or say or be involved in anything. All we can do is send out invites. I'm not going to kidnap anybody and put them in my van and try and bring them to church. That's not what I'm about to do. Simply called to invite us to practice the way of Jesus together. You have the kingdom, the gospel, salvation that has been placed on this planet, the good news of Jesus, and now we have this great church that we participate in. I just want to call us to that. Are you with me? with me. There's a few things. Uh, can you go back to the very beginning? In our rhythm before we come to the table, we're going to come to the table for two minutes. There are a few things that we want to let you and make you aware of. Just a few events that we want to shape as a church community that will, will help us practice the way of Jesus together. One is at the end of this month on Sunday, September 29th, we have a welcome to church party. If you are new or you are a student and you've been around for a while, college student, we would love to have lunch with you out on the porch after our Sunday morning gathering to give us a great time to meet with you and eat with you. Uh, Free lunch. We're going to share a little bit about our mission and vision. We hope you can come. The other big event, though, and we want you to start thinking about this now, is this. Instead of having a Sunday morning gathering on Thanksgiving, we are going to do a Thanksgiving long table 
at Fanshawe Conservation Area. We've rented the Lakeview Pavilion. On a Friday night, we're just going to bust it open. We're going to have a big, long table dinner, turkey dinners. Everybody is invited. And this will give you time on the Sunday to travel, be with friends and family. We can do this before you leave town, for some of you that leave town. And we're just going to have a great big party. Apparently, one of my kids and, and Curtis is going to DJ. They've been, at least he's been conspiring. It's going to be great. There's going to be music, fun. But what we want to do is we want to do this together, a community that eats together. So even now mark it down. For those of you that are parents and have children, we have an author coming. Her name is Natalie Frisk. And a friend of ours, she's going to do an event on raising disciples. She's just written a brand new book around this, uh, this uh, idea of raising disciples. And then, of course, we have our Christmas party where we just bust out the tables and have a great time together. We want to be a community that practices the way of Jesus. That means having a spiritual discipline, outreach, and, of course, engaging these things.